Pray with me, if you would. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning to be gathered together with your people. Lord, we recognize in a year that's been full of sickness and death and everything in between, Father, we know that our hope is only Jesus. Lord, we cling to him this morning. We pray, Father, that you will send your spirit to give us fresh eyes to see him. Lord, how badly we need to see Jesus this morning, whether we know it or not. Lord, I pray that as we look at Zacchaeus, Lord, that we would see him as Zacchaeus saw him, as one who has come to seek and to save. In his name we pray. Amen. I have a confession for you this morning. I was not a perfect child, especially in church. Uh, I grew up in church with uh, faithful Christian parents, um, but with my fourth grade gang of young boys, we caused much destruction. Uh, I remember specifically once I had to go apologize to my vacation Bible school leader, who was also the pastor's son, um, who was also my next door neighbor, because our, our gang of fourth grade boys had, had te- uh, terrorized him all week, and I had to go knock on his door and uh, say an apology that, quite frankly, at the time I didn't really mean. Um, but I remember doing that, and uh, as I was thinking on that this week, I was uh, just thinking I could give some encouragement to parents and, and leaders that that was me then, and this is me now. Um, but I realize, as I say it, that that's not as encouraging as I was probably hoping it is. So, um, But with that said, there is an encouraging part for for parents of church leaders. I I do remember quite a bit, and I remember it. I can look back and see the Lord tracing some things in my childhood and using so many things and pieces in my childhood, although they didn't look like fruit um, as a fourth grade boy. One thing that sticks out that I could never forget is that little childhood song, which you probably knew was coming, right? You remember it with me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior came that way, he looked up in that tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to your house today. I realize this is a story that many of us know, many of us have heard, and therefore it's easy to dismiss it and remember it as a felt-bored, tiny human uh, in a bigger tree and, and leave it at that. But I, I sense and I, I hope that what the Lord paradoxically calls us to in a world full of very adult problems is to hear again with the faith in the heart of a child. You remember Jesus telling his disciples that unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I hope that you who are here this morning and you who are joining us online, can look afresh with the heart of a child at this uh, account of this wee little man and this great big Savior, and that our hearts together could get a glimpse through the window of fresh, childlike wonder at Jesus. So if you would look with me as we look together at the the sinner, the Savior, and the satisfaction. Uh, So let's look first at the sinner, that wee little man named Zacchaeus. It's pretty clear early on that Zacchaeus is your textbook hopeless case. So he is a a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. Uh, You don't have to know a ton about tax collectors, but what you can know is that they were alienated from the rest of their culture. His sin had broken his relationships with many other people, really his whole community, his whole nation. This is for a couple of reasons. Uh, The one you've heard probably in Sunday school is that tax collectors tended to be corrupt, which is to say that they were tasked with 
collecting X amount, and essentially their salary was anything they could collect above that amount. That was how they lined their pockets. And so they were notorious for being corrupt, for taking advantage of people, for taking more than they had to in order to accrue wealth um, in, the, in, their, in their pocketbooks. Um, the other reason that honestly is probably more prominent in uh, the hearers that Jesus is, um, or the, the viewers as Jesus is calling Zacchaeus from the tree, is there, this idea that they, he was really a traitor to his community, right? He was a traitor to his either, even ethnicity. So as a tax collector, what he was essentially doing was that he was, he was basically, especially as a chief tax collector, he was the kingpin, right, of a money racket that was explicitly designed to oppress and take advantage of his community, specifically the Jewish community in Rome. So he was in charge of this financial oppression. He was overseeing this massive system that was oppressing his people. So you can pick your political pejorative, and they probably would have used it for Zacchaeus, right? He was a career politician. He was a Jew in name only. He was a cog in the great system of oppression. Zacchaeus was a despised individual by virtually everyone who he should have held dear. So make no mistake, uh, he was not just a misunderstood character who happened to be vertically challenged. He was a shady character. As a matter of fact, he was even likely declared unclean and unable to come to the synagogue to worship on a given Lord's, on a given Sabbath day. So you can see why the religious leaders were so surprised, right, when Jesus calls him out out of a crowd. And you can hear their, their shock because they were astounded at this provocative dinner that Jesus was organizing in front of everyone. This man is not only unclean, but he's corrupt. And he's not only corrupt, but he's a traitor. And yet Jesus has a pattern of breaking down political walls, doesn't he? You can even see this in his collection, his motley crew of disciples. Remember, he calls out a tax collector in Matthew who wrote another gospel himself. And he also calls out Simon the Zealot. So he's got this cog in the Roman government. And he, alongside it, he calls a zealot who his only interest is overturning the Roman government. He's got these two people who are at totally opposite ends of the political spectrum, totally at opposite ends of how to handle Roman rule, fighting with each other in the streets, and he says, I want both of you to come and follow me. This is what Jesus does, and it frustrates people, right? The religious leaders want Jesus to own Zacchaeus. They want Jesus to condemn Zacchaeus. They want a written statement on why Zacchaeus and all that he represents it's false and contrary to what Jesus is about. But instead of owning or disowning Zacchaeus, he invites himself over for dinner. Have you followed Jesus into such provocative relationships? Do you seek to own the leftists or to dine with them? Do you roll your eyes at the lady wearing the red cap or do you invite yourself over to her house? You see, Jesus is not going to overlook the evil and the injustice perpetrated by Zacchaeus, but he does see a deeper truth, which is that all these relationships that Zacchaeus' sin has broken, the sin that has brought him to this point is not Zacchaeus' real problem. These are all symptoms of something much deeper going on in Zacchaeus, so deep that only Jesus can address it. You see, Zacchaeus' main problem 
It's his broken relationship with God. Zacchaeus' main problem is not that he's alienated from his community. It's not that he's caused a lot of relationships to break down. These are all symptoms. But what's ultimately happened is Zacchaeus has exchanged creator for creature. Zacchaeus has begun to worship in his heart the wealth that his position as tax collector can bring him. Zacchaeus has accepted this position under the impression that he can line his pockets with the money of his community, and that will bring him happiness and satisfaction. And in turn, his worship of money and power and status had robbed him of his community and had made him a willing cog in Rome's oppressive rule. We know this is true from 1 Timothy 6.10, where Paul writes that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He loved money so much, he was willing to turn his back on his community, his family, even likely his worship in the synagogue, in order to grasp a few more coins. Now, if you look at the context of this story, if we were in the Gospel of Luke right now, you would know that just a couple of verses ago, Jesus has encountered another rich man. In Luke chapter 18, he has just encountered the rich young ruler. And so you get one response when Jesus addresses this worship of wealth, this worship of money, this worship of stuff. You remember the story, right? Jesus says, the man comes to him and says, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, easy. Ten commandments, baby. Love God, love neighbor. And rich young ruler, probably naively, says, okay, check, right? Done that. What's next? He says, oh, okay, you have. Okay, well, good deal. The only thing that's left is to sell all your possessions and follow me. And do you remember the rich young ruler walked away sad? So he was unwilling to, to do it. See, what Lou is exposing is these two responses, these two possible responses to the call of Jesus to abandon these idols of the heart, to abandon these false worships that break everything down and that ruin our lives. And we get two possible responses in the rich young ruler. And it's easy, I think, when we hear these stories to the rich, right? These stories aimed at the rich to think of the one percenters, right? So we think of, yeah, these Wall Streeters need to hear this, don't they? Man, those folks in Hollywood, I wish they'd read Luke 19. They could really get something out of this, but I'm certainly not rich. I don't know about you, I don't feel super rich when that mortgage comes, right? And yet, it's, it's easy to read the Bible as though it's only talking to them, isn't it? That's kind of how we tend to read the Bible. That's how our flesh wants to read the Bible is, let me read it and address all of the sins of my spouse, right? Let me read and address all the sins of the culture or all the sins of the people in the political party that I don't like. Let me hear how it speaks to them. And yet the Bible tends not to do that. It does some of that, but it pierces us, doesn't it? And I think if, if we hear God's word correctly this morning, we realize that we are among, very likely among the rich. A couple of statistics for you just to let you chew on it a little bit. If you make $34,000 a year, that puts you in the top 1% of the world's income. Now, some of you who are argumentative, you're sitting here thinking, well, sure, pastor, but I didn't go as far here as it does in sub-Saharan Africa, so that's misleading. Fair enough. I've got more for you. If you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a house or apartment, and have a reasonably reliable means of transportation, you are among the top 15% of the world's wealthy. If you have money saved, a hobby that requires some equipment or supplies, a variety of clothes in your closet, two cars in any condition, and live in your own home, you are among the top 5% of the world's wealthy. 
Now, I understand we all have unique financial circumstances, okay? I'm not intending to be dismissive of financial difficulties in the room, believe me. But this is a good reminder to us, and all I'm seeking to uncover here is this, that we are likely a lot closer to Zacchaeus and a lot closer to the rich young ruler than we realize or would like to admit. Most of us like to think of ourselves as the widow who's coming to give her last might, right? Few of us think of ourselves as Zacchaeus or the rich young ruler, and yet I sense God's word is drawing us in to hear and place ourselves in the story, not as the sacrificial widow, but potentially as the money-loving tax collector. But Zacchaeus' wealth isn't helping him much, is it? So you notice in the story, he's, he's going through the crowd and he can't see, he can't get to the front. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in a movie theater and I see a short person and they come to sit in front of me, I'm not trying to get them out of there, right? I'm looking over at the guy who's 6'11 next to him and saying, please hurry, get here before he does, right? In a crowd, typically, people who are vertically challenged are easy to maneuver, right? They typically can find the front easier, but you can sense Zacchaeus is trying to get to see Jesus, and everybody knows who he is, and he's catching elbows all the way to the front. He's unable to get there. Right? They look, and they see Zacchaeus coming, and rather than saying, ah, he's short enough, I'll see you over him, they cut him off. His relationships, his place in the community is disintegrated. He's got vaults of money, but he can't even walk through a crowd. And you hear in this the, the core truth that sin just rots what it touches, doesn't it? We pursue something. He pursued wealth thinking, this will make me important. This will make people respect me. I'll be the chief tax collector. And instead it does the opposite. You see, a sharp tongue leaves you lonely and distant from those you love. Envy leaves you bitter and angry at those who have more. Sin begins to rot. Is your, do you feel some rot in your life this morning? Are you looking around and seeing some results of sin in your life? And maybe you've been blaming everybody else, been blaming your circumstances, been blaming the fact that, like Zacchaeus, maybe you're blaming the fact that you're short. I don't know. But blaming everything else. But as you look in your own heart, you realize, you know what, there's some stuff that's gone on in my life. I've touched some stuff and sin has rotted it. You see, Zacchaeus' conscience is beginning, I think, to awaken. He knows that sin has rotted what it's touched. He knows that he needs something else. This is why he's seeking out Jesus. He hears about this Messiah. He hears about this one who is forgiving sins, who is healing people. He says, I gotta, I gotta see that guy. I don't know exactly why. I'm curious. I want to see what this is about. He does so much that when he gets cut off, he doesn't give up. And say, well, I tried. I did my part. I guess God didn't want me to see him. He finds a tree, and he climbs it. Zacchaeus knows he needs to see Jesus. His conscience is beginning to awaken, and he's begun to hunger for the real stuff of grace. He knows money isn't doing it for him anymore. He's gotten to the point where he's gotten the money that he set out to get. He's lined his pockets. He's one of the richest men, potentially, in the area, and he's not happy. He's not content. He knows he needs something more. This reminds me when Nora, my daughter, has a, had a pacifier. We used to have some great dad and daughter moments, you know, at night. I would rock her to sleep, and she would get real cute, and she would start to squirm, and I would get that pacifier. She loved that thing, and so it was like a little magic, you know. I'd put it in, and she would take it, and she would calm back down and fall back asleep in my arms, and she would squirm again, spit it out, and I'd put it back in, and she'd calm down. That thing worked wonders. It could do almost anything except when she needed the real stuff, right? When she needed the real thing, 
pacifier wasn't cutting anymore. Now, I could, I could wiggle it around. I could do every which way. You know, I could take it out, put it in. I could do everything. Now, she knew she was hungry, right? The pacifier was great for a while, but eventually I had to give up and hand her to mom. There was no other solution, right? Have you, like Zacchaeus, been chasing pacifiers? Have you been running after things that you hope will just fix that craving, that emptiness that you feel, but you're realizing that you're hungry and the pacifier is not cutting it? The stuff of grace that your soul longs for is the only thing that can fill. Do you, like Zacchaeus, need to see Jesus? Maybe you've been trying to fill yourself with the pacifiers of money and politics. Maybe your pacifier is alcohol or clothes shopping or any of a dozen other things. But have you moved into the cozy suburban life and found yourself, in fact, lonely rather than fulfilled? Have you won the election and found out that you're just as angry and despondent as ever? You see, Zacchaeus is about to meet a Savior who meets Zacchaeus not where he wishes that he was, but meets Zacchaeus exactly where he is. And he calls him out of his hiding place. He calls him out of his loneliness. He calls him out of his anger, despondency, frustration. And he calls him home. My friend, you are never too far gone for Jesus. He sees Zacchaeus in the tree and he calls him out by his name. He doesn't say, hey, short guy, come down. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. You see, in the Savior, we find that Jesus is on a mission to seek and to save. You see, he's on a mission to seek. This is what Jesus says his mission is in the last verse you heard. The Son of Man in verse 10 is on a mission. He came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus has come to seek. We hear in those words that salvation is by grace. It's not by chance. Jesus is about the business of seeking. One pastor has called him the hound of heaven. If you've ever had a hound, you know that once they catch a scent, you're not getting them back until they find that scent. You see, I believe Jesus woke that morning knowing, oh, nice, today's the day I get to go to Zacchaeus' house. Before he had ever seen him in the tree, because he knew his name. He knew where he was. He knew to look up in the tree because he's on a mission to seek and save the lost. And you hear what he says, too. You notice that Jesus invites himself over. This is kind of Jesus' thing, isn't it? He really just, he, he just busts in. He's not super interested in pleasantries or politeness. You remember when his friend Lazarus died? He didn't go up and knock on the stone. Lazarus, when it's convenient for you, could you... Maybe get up, come on out, just on your own time, no rush. What did he say? He got two words, Lazarus, come out. And what did Lazarus do? Maybe later, Jesus. No, Jesus said, come out. Lazarus came out. My friends, Zacchaeus was in a tree and Lazarus was in a tomb, but they have two things in common. Christ called, they came. Jesus seeks sinners. My friend, if you are in Christ today, Jesus did not find you as one finds a $5 bill on the street. Oh, wow, look, what a lucky day. Who would have thought that? Glad I was looking in that direction. Now, Ephesians tells us the way Christ finds us is like adoption. Ephesians 1.5 tells us he has predestined us for adoption as sons to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, some of us, some of you in this room have adopted, many of you have been a part of those processes with friends and family members of yours. And I, I haven't adopted, but I have had friends and family. I walk with them enough to know you don't just go to the orphanage on a whim and say, I want a baby today. I'm feeling kind of babyish. Can I have a kid? What's it cost? Like a hundred bucks or something? Nah. That's not how adoption works, is it? You don't adopt on a whim. No, you have to contact an agency and then they send you some paperwork and you fill out the paperwork and then you raise some funds and then you pay those funds and you raise some more funds because you got to buy some other things, plane tickets, and you raise the funds for plane tickets and you fly out to go get the child, wherever the child happens to be. You fill out more paperwork, then you pay for a plane ticket for the child and yourself, and you fly back home, and then that begins the process of making that child part of your, well, that child is part of your family, but welcoming that child into your family. You see, you don't bring a kid home by accident. That's not the way adoption works, and that's not the way Jesus works. He didn't wake up one morning on a whim and decide, you know what, I'll save that one today. And man, this is encouraging news, isn't it? Because if he didn't choose us on a whim, he also doesn't keep us on a whim. You see, if Jesus had woken up one morning and decided, yeah, I'll try out Brandon. He seems like he's having a decent day. Talked to his kids a little frustratingly and, you know, didn't help the old lady across the street. But other than that, he's, he's doing all right. He read his Bible this morning. If that's how Jesus chooses us, then what happens tomorrow when Brandon forgets to read his Bible that morning and not only doesn't help the old lady across the street, but also doesn't help the old man across the street, whatever it is. If that's how it works, we have no rest. We have no security. And yet, we know from here in these verses, his mission is to seek the lost. His pursuit is intentional. Like any parent or lover or hound, once your Jesus says he does not let you go. Take heart, my weary doubting friend, just as Christ sought you and adopted you, so too he will keep you. Perhaps this morning he is seeking you. You feel for the first time you sense that he is drawing you in like Zacchaeus. He spotted you in the tree. And you are here, as Ephesians says, in the fullness of time for this very moment. And he is drawing you in. He's calling you, come down. Quit hiding in the tree. Can you hear the voice of Jesus gently calling? It's time to come down. I love the words of J.C. Ryle here. He says, Oh, you who want unfailing comfort, I commend you to Christ. In him alone there is no failure. Rich men are disappointed in their treasures. Learned men are disappointed in their books. Husbands are disappointed in their wives. Wives are disappointed in their husbands. Parents are disappointed in their children. Politicians are disappointed when after many a struggle... They attain place and power. They find out to their cost that it is more pain than pleasure, that it is disappointment, annoyance, incessant trouble, worry, vanity, and vexation of spirit. But no man was ever disappointed in Christ. Zacchaeus was not disappointed. Did you hear the words? He received him joyfully. That's a contrast from the rich young ruler walking away sad to hear that Zacchaeus received him joyfully. You see, Jesus brings joy. May we also consider the cost 
and receive Jesus joyfully. You see, when Jesus, when the man turned around, the rich young ruler turned around, Jesus said, man, it's impossible, isn't it, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were amazed and said, man, if that guy's not getting in, who is? Remember what Jesus said? With God, all things are possible. And here's the living parable, right? Here's the living example. The chief tax collector, the most evil man likely seen in the kingdom. Jesus says, this one is the one with all, with God, all things are possible. You see, Zacchaeus was sought, but Zacchaeus was not only sought, he was also saved. His sins were forgiven. Now, I don't think he quite knew how his sins were forgiven. I don't think, I don't think Zacchaeus exactly knew exactly what, he just knew that Jesus was welcoming him, and in turn he responded. But we know how, how Zacchaeus' sins were forgiven, don't we? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, as Jesus walked the hill to Calvary, he was taking with him Zacchaeus's shame, Zacchaeus's theft, Zacchaeus's corruption, and he was nailing it to himself on the cross. Jesus bore the brunt. He bore the weight of Zacchaeus's shame and guilt, and in turn, he gives Zacchaeus joyful righteousness. Zacchaeus turns from his sin and turns to God. Yes, the shepherd laid his life down for his sheep. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn 1,800 years after Zacchaeus' death, but I imagine that Zacchaeus has sung it a time or two in glory. It goes like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Salvation came to Zacchaeus' house that day, but salvation is only the beginning of Zacchaeus' story. Forgiveness is only the beginning of Zacchaeus' story. As Zacchaeus was forgiven, his salvation now leads to his satisfaction. So the third thing we see in the story of Zacchaeus is that repentance leads to action. You see, in English, satisfaction has a couple of meanings, right? One, it means fulfillment, right? So after I eat a good meal, I am satisfied. Zacchaeus was certainly satisfied. He received Jesus joyfully. Satisfaction also can mean a, a reparation for, for wrongs, right? So justice is satisfied as someone spends their sentence. You see, the, the Bible does this neat thing where it connects repentance and response throughout the Scriptures. It connects this attitude of repentance with a direct response. You see this in many places. Acts 26.20 20 is one of them. Paul declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and all throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You hear that? Repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So you hear in Zacchaeus, he repents. He turns from his sin of greed and lust for money, 
corruption and stealing from others. And what does he do in return? Does Jesus say, well, Zacchaeus, if you would bow your head, close your eyes, let's pray this prayer. See you in heaven. He doesn't, does he? Zacchaeus is moved in his joy at his repentance now to tangible action. He says in verse 8, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You see, Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus changes what he loves. He goes from loving his money to loving his Lord. And in turn, it changes what he does. I don't know what Zacchaeus ate at his meal that night, but I am certain that he had tasted and seen that the Lord was good. Have you? Has it been too long since you've drunk deeply from the fountain of Christ? Has it been too long since you've been satisfied in Jesus? Some of you have done church long enough that you're already thinking, okay, I feel conviction, let me pray real quick, and yeah, I repented, and what's for lunch again? And you're moving through these steps, you know, yeah, there's sin, I, I repented for it, I pray, okay. Can I just give you an encouragement for just a moment? Pause and pray to Jesus before you Repent, turn, and then move on with your life. Ask Jesus to help you receive him joyfully in the way that Zacchaeus did. Ask him to change what it is that you love. Repent not just of the symptoms, of the ways your sin has ruined your life or turned your life upside down. Begin to examine your heart. Pull up the roots. Ask Jesus for help to receive him joyfully. Don't just pray for salvation. Certainly start there. But if you've already done that, pray for him to continue to help you to taste and see. Zacchaeus was seized by a new affection. His response was a given because his repentance was genuine. He had found a love that trumped all other loves. My friends, the spiritual disciplines are hard. All right, I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to tell you that, but they are hard. Reading your Bible, praying, giving, working for justice, all these things are difficult work. These things don't come naturally to us. They are actually impossible apart from the work of the Spirit. Anyone who tells you they're easy, here's a 10-step plan, go do it, that's a huckster, man. This stuff is hard. And you will not do it if you don't see the goal in mind. You see, reading your Bible is meant to help you love Jesus. It's meant to help you see Jesus. Praying is meant to help you hear Jesus. Giving is meant to help you work toward Jesus' kingdom. Working for justice is meant to help you point to the kingdom of Jesus. All the disciplines are meant to revolve around Jesus. All of our righteous acts are meant to revolve around love of Jesus. My friend, yes, do all of these things. Read your Bible, pray, work for justice, but don't miss Jesus in all of your resolutions. During our many days in the hospital with my middle son, Amos, we encountered a lot of nurses, and we uh, worked with a lot of nurses, and we were incredibly grateful for their work. Uh, some of them were better than others. Some were not so great. Some were exceptional, and many were very good. But even the best ones couldn't hold a candle to the kind of care that Amos got from mom. Mom would spot things that the nurses didn't. She would calm him down in ways they couldn't teach in nursing school. 
it, it got to the point where, you know, the nurse, the good nurses would just come in and ask Caitlin, what do you think we should do? Because they knew that she's been caring for him, she's been doing all this, and she can see things that they couldn't. And some of that is that my wife is amazing, so there is that. But I think another part of it is this simple truth that love will always make a greater fuel than duty. Love will always make a greater fuel than duty. You see, even the best nurses cannot match the care that my wife poured into our son because of her love for him. They weren't supposed to. It wasn't possible. My friend, even the most rigorous of you, even the most disciplined of you, won't hold a candle to the one who is simply running hard after Jesus. When you have experienced grace, you begin to take radical love-fueled steps, like Zacchaeus did. Did you hear him say, Behold, Lord, I give it all to the poor. You can almost hear him, Look, Jesus, no hands. I'm just giving it to you. I don't care about this stuff. Here is restitution, Zacchaeus says. Here's justice. I don't have to worry about myself anymore. You're taking care of me. I give it back to everyone. You begin to make radical statements like Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You no longer give from guilt, but you bring your money to the Lord to say, do something with it, Jesus. It's not mine anyway. You don't withhold your time and love from other people saying, well, i got to conserve that. I don't know how much of that i got. You begin to be covered by the love of Christ to know that all investment is eternal. So this morning, while you might know the truth, do you remember the last time you actually sacrificed for Jesus? Not, I'm not talking about, you know, routine, tithes. Yeah, I, do some, I stacked some chairs the other day. Do you remember that last time you actually sacrificed for Jesus? The last time you were let down by loving someone who seemed like Zacchaeus to be a hopeless case. The last time you felt that inner brokenness as you prayed and wept over your lost friends and family. That time you risked your political structure and asked some questions of someone who didn't agree with you in order to get to know them, to love them, to invest in them. And yes, the last time that you sacrificially gave of your material resources. I'll close with one more word from J.C. Ryle. I like J.C. He says, Let everyone think seriously whether his religion costs him anything at present. Very likely it costs you nothing. Very probably it neither costs you trouble, nor time, nor thought, nor care, nor pains, nor reading, nor praying, nor self-denial, nor conflict, nor working, nor labor of any kind. Now mark what I say. Such a religion as this will never save your soul. It will never give you peace while you live, nor hope while you die. It will not support you in the day of affliction, nor cheer you in the hour of death. A religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. My friend, like Zacchaeus, Jesus meets you right where you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you there. My prayer this morning is that together we will look on at the adult world with its very real adult problems and with the faith of a child begin to grow in love and adoration and awe at Jesus. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus and you 
and me. So as you sit hiding in your tree, Jesus is calling. What is your next step of faith? Jesus is saying it's time to come down. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a Savior who does not stay safe on his throne, Lord, but descends to pursue sinners like Zacchaeus and sinners like me, Lord, sinners in this room. We all acknowledge that we have one thing in common, which is we are great sinners and that we have a great Savior. Lord, I ask that you will, by the power of your Spirit, convict where we need convicting. Lord, I pray that you will build us up where we need building. I pray that your word will continue to work in us as we respond and worship. I pray that you will continue to shape us as disciples of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.